3: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, July 17th, the Ethan Hawk in a minivan edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate, and the mom of Harry 5, Sam 3, and Wally 1.
4: Uh, and I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the new editor-in-chief of Slate, um, and I'm the dad of Lyra, who is nine, and Harper, who is six. I'm not really, but Julia Turner is. It's very exciting. Very If you're exciting. a listener and not a reader, go check it out. We have a brand new editor-in-chief. She's great.
2: On today's show, we'll talk to writer-director Richard Linklater about his new movie, Boyhood, and then to writer—not director—Rebecca Onion about her attempt to craft a pre-pregnancy contract with her husband— also, parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a Slate reader email, not a call, but an email, on how political to get when talking to young kids about gay parents. But before we get to all that, I'm going to get all of our reminders and nags out quickly because I'm sick of this taking a long time. One, subscribe to Mom and Dad are Fighting and iTunes or your favorite podcast app and keep spreading the word. Two, sign up for Slate Plus or at least try it out for free. For two weeks, go to slate.com plus to sign up. Okay, that's it. Good job. Dan, on to triumphs and fails. What do you got?
4: All right. Uh, I've got a fail uh, this week. Um, so it's not a huge fail, but it was just a, sort of a frustration that we had, which is that we went to Wisconsin over July 4th weekend to visit my family. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have these trips and at the end of them, you're like, man, that was a great trip. That, everything was great. We had fun. Some things went wrong, but whatever. It was great. But that was not how we felt at the end of this trip. In general, it was just a frustrating trip. We... You know, we're busy, and so we did not plan it well. Um, I didn't, like, reach out to a lot of people ahead of time to make plans. I didn't, like, talk to my parents about what we were going to do. And I think I sort of had it in the back of my head. Ah, my mom and dad, they'll plan some stuff for all of us to do. But they didn't plan anything for us to do. But that is not their fault. Your parents failed. It's my (laughs) fault for for not, like, saying, hey, it would really help us for you to plan some stuff for us to do or whatever. Like, so the trip was just, like, a lot of... A lot of it was like my kids sitting around my mom's tiny house complaining that there was nothing to do. And, you know, they played with some friends and they rode bikes a little bit and we went to a Brewers game. But every day was like a little bit of an ordeal to get out the house and find some damn thing for us to do. And what's open and where should we go? And are the kids just going to bitch if we take them to this place? And like we never even got out of the house before like noon any day. So it wasn't like a terrible trip, but it was not that fun for them and so we left the kids in wisconsin for a couple of days ollie and i flew home we left the kids with their grandparents because it was so bad or you were planning because to do that it was so anyway? bad that we were like <laughs> fuck everything no it was just that was the plan like the plan was for them uh, lyra did a, ne- a thing in madison with my dad this to create this thing that is going to be my, re- my recommendation in fact uh this week um and uh and so they had some plans. And so – but in general, I feel like I think they had more fun when we were out of the way, like when we were not there being like, oh, what – like, mom, why didn't you think of something to do? And when it was just them with my parents, I think they had a fine time. Um, and, and I mean the good news is that I did try to make up my fail from last episode about being rude to my mom by refinancing her mortgage. So I think that helped. Uh, that helped in the long run. But the trip other than that was Humble sort, brag. Of a, sort of a bummer.
2: Uh, I kind of see that as a triumph because now you have constructed it in such a way that your parents are like, you know what? It's better if you just leave the kids with us and you guys go well, your own Well, that's, yeah, thing. that's the it overall like triumph win. for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah,
4: definitely. Okay.
2: Well, I had a triumph. It was also about our, uh, 4th of July week. Sorry, ours was good. Um, but. America. <laughs> we go every year to my husband's father's family cottage, um, a sort of cluster of cottages owned by various cousins on the water. I'm making it sound like some fancy estate. It's actually not. Each cottage has one bathroom, and you're only allowed to flush when you go number two. But... (laughs) Only one bathroom? Oh No, I only have one bathroom. I'm sorry. Each each cottage only has one bathroom and houses many families at once. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And you're only allowed to flush when you go number two. That is just my way of saying it's not this luxurious estate by the water right anyway we go over summer. summer it's wonderful there's history there the kids see their cousins they stay up until you know 11 o'clock at night every night playing flashlight tag or whatever tag they play zap Uh, and it's a blast But there's also some—and it's really also wonderful every year to see their progression and the things that they can do with the other kids that are there. And last summer, there was a huge psychodrama for Harry because all the kids, all his cousins were pressuring him to jump off the pier into the water, and he was too scared. And every Mm -hmm. day, it was like the same thing every day that they would, like, pump him up at breakfast, and he'd say he was going to do it, and we'd all go out there, and he'd get his little toes on the edge of the water—I mean, the edge of the pier— And then he'd be too scared. Oh, my God. And I... So Harry is
4: like, Harry is little me, FYI.
2: And little me, too. And I, feeling so horrible for him getting all this peer pressure, this cousin pressure, I was constantly, all week, this was last year, constantly always saying, like, it's okay, Harry, you don't have to do it, there's no, you know, no pressure, you don't, whatever. I was trying to make it easier for him. This year, we got there. First of all, A, he jumped right off, which was great. Triumph for Harry. Good job, Harry. But then the new pressure came with everyone telling him that he, oh, he did it with a life jacket. And the rule is that you have to do it with a life jacket until you pass the swimming test. I'm sorry. The story is getting really long. So his cousins started pressuring him again (laughs) that he could pass the swimming test and take off his life jacket. And he wanted to take the swimming test. And I knew that he would fail. I knew he couldn't pass the swimming test. He doesn't really know how to swim. He's learning, but he doesn't. But instead of saying, trying to protect him from that failure, I triumphed and I let him fail. We got in the water with him or my husband, John, got in the water with him. He tried to take the swimming test, which is jumping off the pier with no life jacket and swimming to the shallow end where you can stand. Right. He, like, was flailing around and, like, pre-drowning. <laughs> right. Uh, and we let him do that as much as we could. And then right. John grabbed him. And and he was, you know, disappointed. He thought he could do it. He was angry at John for, for grabbing him because he thought he was actually swimming, which he wasn't. Right. but. But then he was fine, and he wants to try it again. He wasn't, like, dissuaded. He's asked me again since we've been back if he can take the swimming test at a different pool because we're not going back to the cottage next summer. And I I feel like he triumphed by, you know, failing and being cool with it and wanting to try again, and I triumphed by letting him fail.
4: I think that's a great triumph. That's Thank very you. good. Yes, he will be very motivated to learn to swim, for example. Yeah. With that in his memory.
2: Yes, that's what I think, too. Okay, on to our first topic. Uh, Richard Linklater made his great new film, Boyhood, over the course of 12 years, filming his actors as they aged. It's the story of Mason, who we meet as a young boy and watch grow into a young man. But it's also the story of his mom and dad, played by Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke, who we meet as young parents and watch grow into middle age. A process that Dan is currently, Dan and I sorry, are currently quite familiar with. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I was going to do that little joke and then it wasn't working. So I just <laughs> play it straight. We're both becoming middle age. We both are. We are so thrilled to have Richard Linklater, father and filmmaker, in the D.C. studio to talk about boyhood, both the movie and the stage of life and its inevitable partner, Parenthood. Hi, Richard.
0: Hey, good to be here.
2: So Mason has one mother figure in this movie, his biological mom, uh, but he has many father figures. There's his biological dad, but also a series of stepdads and stand-ins who, though mostly assholes... Uh, Each brings some, I thought, fairly relatable parenting style and baggage to Mason's life. And as a mom of three boys, I couldn't help but think while watching that there's something I'll never understand about fathers and sons. What is it? (laughs)
0: Well, I think the whole world. You mentioned the, yeah, there's the stepfathers who are in his life. But then there's also teachers and the whole culture. I mean, I wanted to capture that feeling when you're a kid. It feels like everybody's in your face. But men in particular feel like... It's their job to kind of mold you for the world. Like a mom, I think, well, you know, they're parenting, but um, you're more likely to be concerned with just you <laughs> and your soul or something. Or men feel it's their job quite often to to really influence you and shape you. And, to, and I think that's where the stepfathers come in. You kind of resent their presence and their authority on you, and they come off like assholes. But I think they're really just kind of stuck with, um, themselves in a situation, they're they're basically doing their best. But from the kid's point of view, yeah, they're totally invading their space and is exerting authority that they
4: really don't have the right to. So that's how it feels when you're a kid. Do you think that that's unique to being a boy as a kid, that the men want to mold you in that way? Or do you think that that happens to, to boys and girls?
0: I think that happens to- Everybody probably. Mm-hmm. But there's that thing about being a man and all these men
4: telling you what to do.
0: <laughs> I don't, that's I, how it felt to me as a kid. I wish everyone would just shut up.
4: Right. Well, and there's a, a certain sense that many men in Mason's life, it seems like, feel like they need to define manhood for him. And the movie is very interested in what manhood is as yeah. much as it is in boyhood.
0: Yeah. And even the older boys like he's in eighth grade he ends up at a camp out with these seniors there's oh, two yeah. guys who happen to be seniors in high school so Those he, jerks. he gets a taste of what it is to be a you know a jerk of, of that age <laughs> but I, I think it's important you know the way they talk about women and yeah. you know they mess with them, bordering on violence um you know it's important that mason kind of absorbs that and i think his own little triumph is that he kind of chooses not to be one of those guys. Yeah. You know, by the end of the movie, he, he's, it's clear he's not one of those kind of guys.
2: But he's there's more – he's his dad.
4: He's probably some version of his dad, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love that scene. There's a scene late in the movie for um, listeners who have not seen it yet, and you should definitely see it. Uh, but I don't think it's like a big spoiler or anything to say that there's a scene uh, later in the movie on one of Mason's birthdays where he gets as gifts uh, a Bible, a suit – And a gun, and I love that as sort of like a mini encapsulation, right? It's like a mini encapsulation of one idea of one generation's, or rarely actually two generations' ideas of what manhood entails. And as you were making this movie, Richard, what did you end up thinking about what what kind of man Mason would become, and how, in the end, all these different things affected him?
0: Well, that's fairly autobiographical. When I was 13, it was for Christmas, not, not a birthday. My uh, step-grandmother and father, you know, sweetest people ever. But she gave me a Bible with my mm-hmm. name on it, and you know, all Jesus's words in red, you know, personal Bible. And then my stepfather gave me a shotgun, you know, and so which was wonderful, you know. At, at the time, we shot a lot of targets, mm-hmm. and, you know. But I realized I was having a very southern, rural, you know, experience there. And like a lot of our country, I think that's, that's just a cultural reality. Uh, years later, I started thinking about that and said, you know, that's kind of that's funny. That's kind of mm-hmm. interesting maybe. Mm-hmm. It meant something. I always make a joke. That's my, that was my redneck bar mitzvah. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, years later, I could, I could use that in some way. But I don't know what it really says. You know, I don't know. Those, both those items, the gun and the Bible, um, they exist. I don't know to what degree, Mason, they will shape Mason or influence him.
2: When you're watching the movie, you're watching these characters pass through time. But for me, even I think more moving was watching these actors pass through time and watching the parents get a little chubbier and get yeah. wrinkles. And, hmm. you know, Dan was saying earlier before the show that he sort of went in and out of identifying with Mason and identifying with the parents. I I pretty much stuck with the parents throughout. Um And I'm likely whoever when you watch Mm -hmm. when people watch this movie, it depends on their stage of life, what they're going to connect to. I wonder making it. I mean, you said some, you know, there's obviously autobiographical parts. But were you were you relating to the parents or. Both. Both.
0: I mean, the movie ends up being called Boyhood, but it could just as easily be called Parenting or Parenthood. I guess that had already been taken. But (laughs) but. Yeah, I always saw it as that because that's where I started from. I, had, uh, when I started this movie, I'd been a parent for, you know, six, seven, eight years. And that's where I started thinking about making a film about growing up. But I also knew it'd be a reflection of parenting and kind of bumbling through parenting and figuring that out. And I think both Patricia and Ethan's characters are kind of consciously doing their best. And you see the flaws and all in both of their approaches. And I, I just have to say, Patricia, and ethan give these really vanity free performances they allow the trajectory of their characters to to show all those years and to uh y- you see the toll <laughs> time kind of takes on all of us psychically physically and all that but you know i still see them as kind of in their own way kind of great great people you know
4: yeah i agree i mean i i i it i really got the impression that they were parents trying the best they could and i really liked that the movie made them not just parents but characters that exist outside of their kids you know they have lives and they yeah. have concerns
0: and they both reached their own maturity for that level here they are at the end of the movie in their 40s and you know she got everything she was setting out to do largely in that first episode she went back to school she got an education she got a post you know she got a master's. She got a teaching job. She, you know, and, and him too. He settled down and uh, has a career and can support a family. And, you know, they both got their own piece of the American dream by working hard and, you know, living by that contract. You mm-hmm. could see it as a compromise, but. Well, compared, they're also both frustrated. Compared in ways. to what? Right. But yeah. who isn't? Right. You know, right. life is, you know, a series of kind of compromises and little uh, maneuverings you have to do to just make it all work for you and your family. And you could see that as a triumph if you can get through it, uh, you know, and feel okay about yourself and your family, or you could feel frustrated. It's it's just kind of up to each individual, I guess.
2: And that's the contrast. Oh, Oh, sorry, sorry, Dan. Dan. No, I I was just going to say that's the contrast with Mason. He's still young enough to feel like – you know his dad getting a minivan is like the most horrible thing trading his <laughs> awesome car for a minivan is so horrible because he doesn't you know he can't see in his that in his future
0: yeah i mean that's a total defeat that's yeah. a and not only that he he sold it and gave it away cuz he thought he would he was going to get the car but it's a total capitulation but actually by the time you're in your 40s you go you know that thing's an expensive maintenance <laughs> sucking gas guzzling right. polluting right super you know it's a you know, we love that kind of muscle car from the late '60s, but it, you know, it
4: makes no sense. It makes as little sense as living the life of a 20-year-old when you're a dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he has put away childish things right. finally, finally. Do you see reflections of your own parenting style in those two parents? Is there anything about Olivia's parenting or about Mason Senior's parenting that reminds you of you as a parent? Oh gosh, uh, I think it
0: must to a, a, a large degree. I'm, I'm kind of self-conscious about the way Ethan will just speak up and say, hey, we're going to talk to each other. He's, right. he's very self-consciously putting it on the table that he's parenting and trying to do his best or trying to learn from it. I kind of do that with my kids. I'll look over and go, hey, so are you having an okay childhood? You know, <laughs> What what could be better? You know, how could we improve this? You know, I'll just kind of kid, – I'm kidding. I'm sort of tongue-in-cheek, and I'll talk about my dilemma as a dad. Well, as right. your dad, I'm supposed to do this, but I'm not going to. Because you know, whatever I just, I'm kind of self-reflective <laughs> dad who, mm. I, you know, I mean, I always tell people you're gonna get it wrong no matter what. You might as well have kind of fun doing it.
2: Um, your daughter plays the plays Mason's sister in the in the movie. Can you talk a little bit about? How much she hated you through that process? No, it was, it was so,
0: it was actually a very, very fun, very natural thing for us to do as a daughter and a father. And, uh, you know, I never cast her in this movie. She cast herself, if you want to get technical. Once she realized there was a part for an older sister that was in her age range, she was just like, oh, well, I'm going to play that part. And that was who she was at that time, and I was like, "Yeah, well, good. I'll I'll know where you are every year. One yeah. less vol- one <laughs> less volatile element to sink this movie somewhere along the way. At least I'll know where you are." And uh, she's kind of perfect. I'm very proud of her. She's she, great. She, she's she worked really great. hard, yeah. and and yeah. and the the utter familiarity I have with her, and intimacy just allowed. I mean, I think if you could always make a movie with people you live with and know so well, I could make a movie of anybody, actor or not, because I just knew every little thing that and how to maybe use it in the movie.
4: It would probably helped so, that it was just a couple days a year. Yeah, it was,
0: yeah, right, it was yeah. only three. There was only one year she kind of wanted to opt out. She asked me very politely and sweetly like, Dad, can my character like? Die. <laughs> you know, I was like, no, Lorelai, that would be a little dramatic for the movie we're trying to make. So, no, you can't. You will have to dress up. Yeah. Like you don't want to dress up and right. do this. And then at some point, she realized uh, she was getting paid every year. You know, SAG minimum is pretty good money for an adult, yeah. it's really good money. For a thirteen-year-old, right? Yeah, you make more in one her week of working on this movie than working at you know babysitting all summer. So once she realized that, she was she wanted to buy a harp. She <laughs> was playing the harp. I was like, great, <laughs> you can pay for half of it. You know, it was it was it was a fun thing in our lives. No no doubt about it.
2: You've done and, well if the thing your daughter wants to blow her money on is a harp.
0: Yeah, for yeah. real, <laughs> not and, a GTO. Hey, those,
4: those things retain their value. Yeah. <laughs> damn, I'm happy about that. Um, there's <laughs> a. a One thing that I really found interesting watching it as a dad of girls and as a one time son um, was there's a lot of sports early in the movie, right? There's he's teaching them how to throw football, he takes them to an Astros game. um, But it's but it becomes sort of clear later on in Mason Jr.'s life that he just doesn't care about sports that much. Yeah. Um, And I don't know if that mirrored Eller Coltrane or if that was a choice that you made in creating the movie, but I know that you played sports, right? Mm -hmm. Growing up, you played baseball. Um, were you sort of surprised that in this particular boy's story, sports did not end up being a defining feature the way they were for you? No, I th- I think – well, I made a choice early on. I was meeting a lot of
0: kids and Eller, I could tell he was going to grow up and be – his parents are artists. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any interest in sports mm-hmm. where if, you, if I would have interviewed me at six or seven, I was football and baseball. Right. That was my entire life. Right. So I met kids like that, smart, you know good actor kids and I, I made a choice. I was like, well, what's the better part of myself? The, th- <laughs> the thoughtful, uh, you know, kind of vaguely, you know, sensitive, mysterious kid who likes music and movies or the little jock kid who might end up class president and all that. I, I went with that other side, the mm-hmm. more that thoughtful side. Uh, I just thought it'd be a more interesting movie but yeah, I, I never thought he would grow up and I would be filming him in a sporting event. I kind of thought he would be a musician because his father's a good musician, but he ended up a visual artist. So I was happy to include, you know, photography as his, you know, passion, and that, that made a lot of sense. The film was always going to go where Eller went, but I didn't miss that at all. I, I mean, I think I wanted to show a dad who you feel obliged as a father to expose your kids to sports. Right. Like, oh, I'm supposed. To, let's go throw the ball. But if it doesn't take, you can't really force it.
2: Do you think a movie called Girlhood would be a completely different movie? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, not completely. I think it could have a very similar tone. I mean, this is really Girlhood. I would say the first half of this movie is largely Girlhood. It could be Girlhood. It only when – I think when Eller's character gains more agency and it's his his point of view is more enforced and it's his world that it becomes really more – more of a male movie in that regard, but uh, she you know his sister Samantha is probably a more predominant character in such a large you know large first, especially the first half of the movie, because that mirrors I had two older sisters, I have two older sisters, and they at that age, they sort of dominated me the way my parents did you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> as a little one you, you they're really kind of screwing with you and you, you know influencing you quite a bit. So uh <laughs> I wanted to show that in the movie but yeah you you see her but again kind of from his point of view largely she's the annoying o- older sister where as they age um you know she becomes more of a a partner I think they're yeah. in it,
4: they're in it together and that's how it was with my sisters Their relationship is really great and really interesting. So did Lorelai and Eller, did they see each other outside of the shooting of the movie? Did they have a chance to build any kind of relationship Um, like that? Because for each
0: of them, when we started, I mean, Lorelai didn't have a brother. Eller didn't have a sister. They immediately fell into this kind of sibling thing that was Mm -hmm. both bonding and, you know, rivalrous and uh, really fascinating. They fell into it and they maintained it. And I think they're really bonded because they went through something that no one else has ever gone through. Yeah. Yeah. And here at the end they're kind of holding each other going god we we're exposed to our our awkward ages and everything. It's <laughs> my god. Two people haven't ever been portrayed in this way these fictional characters, but it's them and all their um you know the, through the awkward and the beautiful. So they really do relate to one another and you know the way they've been through it as a as a family. But it was fun to to see them mature, and you know, but they were al- always friends. We lived in the same town. Eller, mm-hmm. we'd go to movies, and I think they have their own special relationship.
4: It makes me happy to think that they will like know each other going forward, <laughs> the way that fictional Mason and Samantha would know each other going forward. That, that's just nice to hear.
0: Yeah, there's a bond, and I think they both can kind of get on each other's nerves and, in ways too. So good
2: <laughs> when they were when they were going through their awkward phases. Were they? Al- was it also harder for them to act? Like, were they more insecure?
0: I don't ever remember that, really. This was such a, I don't know, it was just a part of their lives. I never remember that being an issue. We always worked the same way. Eller said he had a couple awkward years, but I never felt that at all yeah. as working with him. And through Lorelei's more self-conscious um, years I just tried to use that in the movie in some way you know when they're going on the camping trip and he's talking about contraception that's kind of where, where she was at and I said I said oh well, let's film that this year because if we and let's film her first because mm-hmm. when he says some of those words I know exactly what she's going to do it's just cringe <laughs> and wish you, just to hear those words are just <laughs> so cringeworthy like you know condoms and she's like
2: oh no yeah, her face kind of is where, great. That's and then, where
0: she was
4: at at that very moment.
2: And he just gets up and walks away or tries to walk away. <laughs> he tries to.
4: Yeah. He tries to. You mentioned kids. I know you have Lorelai, a daughter. Do you have a son now at this point? No, since I have
0: two 10-year-old um, twins, so all girls.
4: Oh, okay. Yeah, like you. Uh, well, I mean, that's a that's a fine way to go, obviously. Yeah. Uh, although it's Allison the- doesn't understand it at all with her
0: three boys. but Not at all. Yeah, my three girls. I'm so happy with them.
2: Well, Richard, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Good talking to you guys. Yeah,
0: yeah.
4: thanks a lot for coming in. We really appreciate Good. it. The movie we is love great. The, movie. the, the movie mysteries
0: is- of parenting. It it'll never it's a it's a bottomless well. Do oh, you yeah. have any parting
2: words of wisdom for us? Our kids uh, are younger than yours.
0: I, oh man, just uh <laughs> hang in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, enjoy it. <laughs> enjoy, especially up to whatever that teenager's I'm sure everyone's already told you. Enjoy right. these Early years, I got the best of both worlds. I've got one who's already out of the house, and then the 10 year olds I'm treasuring every second because right. I that's... know it ends, it changes, it just becomes something else. But I'm so enjoying this, I'm not taking it for granted this time.
4: Watching this movie has really inspired me to try and like I'm not going to make a 12 year movie with my kids, but I want to <laughs> find some sort of enduring project to do with them. That I feel like I mean, that's a lesson to take as a parent out of this. That if you can find something. To do with your kids, it spans over a long time. It seems like it can be rewarding.
0: Yeah. How about like yeah, writing letters to their future selves mm-hmm. or, you know, it's something that has to do with time and maturity. I think there's a lot of fun little projects you can do with your kids and right. For in a long-term, longitudinal way that will be interesting perhaps to them at some future
4: moment. You know? Yeah. Who knows? All right. Thanks a lot. We All really right, appreciate Good talking it. to you guys. All right.
2: So each week we take a call and question from a listener and we would love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Ask us anything and we will do our best to answer. That being said, today we are not going to take a call. Instead, our awesome colleague Mark Stern, who writes for Slate's LGBTQ blog Outward, is joining us to read a letter he got from a reader and to help us answer it. Mark, hi. Take it away.
3: Hello. All right. So this is a letter I got last Friday. Mr. Stern... I am a divorced father of three great kids. My oldest daughter is turning seven. She recently brought a book home from the library about a penguin family, the same book that you wrote about in today's slate. While reading it with her, it became clear very quickly that this was about a gay penguin couple and a child. We live in a suburb of Cincinnati, and the environment here is pretty conservative. Although her mother and I have never and would never shy away from LGBTQ subjects, her real-life exposure to anything LGBTQ has been non-existent. While both her mother and I have gay and lesbian friends, the subject of their sexuality has never come up around my daughter. In reading the book, she asked for an explanation for why both penguins were boys. I explained that sometimes boy penguins loved other boy penguins and girl penguins loved other girl penguins, and that this is true for us people, too. My daughter then asked to clarify for herself, so that means that they can love each other and get married and then they can adopt kids? I was stumped on how to answer this. It's still legal in Ohio for lesbians and gays to marry, though hopefully this will change soon. Without trying to explain the political and sociological background to this injustice in human rights, I simply said yes to her question. But now I'm questioning this response. I want my kids to be aware of the injustice and oppression in our society and to act on that injustice as they are moved to do. But my daughter's seven. I want to explain this to her in a way that she can understand, but also not confuse her or the message I'm sending. I've asked my friends, and they're stumped on this as well. I know you aren't in the advice column business, but I've always enjoyed your articles. I can skip over this part. Uh, (laughs) No, no, no.
2: no. What else did you say? You're so handsome. (laughs) And
3: your writing style and your hairstyle. and yeah. Uh, So would you have any ideas on how to relate this to my daughter. Thanks for taking the time. So that's the question. It's a great question. So we want to have you talk a little bit about what you think. But I would
4: first say what I have, in fact, said to my kids on this specific issue. I live in a state, Virginia, uh, where gay marriage is not yet legal. Right. That's one of the states where it's not legal. Right. Mark Although a judge
3: has ruled that it's uh, invalid, but the ruling was stayed and it's being appealed, so it's still not legal. Mark has encyclopedic
4: knowledge of every state and what Friday they're going to declare gay marriage legal on. It's really a curse. Um, so uh, I, I, this question has come up in our house, um, and I answered it in a way slightly different than this letter writer did, which is to say that I said yes. Gay people can get married. They can adopt children. Some states, including our state, have laws that suggest that maybe they can't. But – In every state I can think of, those laws are well on their way toward being overturned. I think those laws are unfair. A lot of people think those laws are unfair. And and so it won't be long before those laws don't exist anymore. And sometimes laws don't keep up with the times. This is a case where that happened. And I feel like Lyra basically got that. Like, she understood it. I didn't have that same conversation with Harper. I'm not sure exactly what it would have been. But I did try to make clear... That this is a case where the law as it exists is not right and not fair. And, and luckily, it's, a, an, it's one of the unfair laws that is actually going to get overturned really soon. Like that's, that's in the cards. I, it would be harder, I think, maybe to talk about laws that you as a, as a parent consider unfair but that aren't in any danger of being overturned anytime soon.
3: So I think that's a great tack, uh, especially if you have very sophisticated children, and your dad writes for a magazine, and your mom is a constitutional law lawyer. Sure, yeah, that. Um, <clears throat> I think that for for the rest of us, um, for other parents, it, it, it that's one way of approaching it. If your kid is maybe nine or ten or eleven, then that's probably the best way. Although I, I mean, at that point, they've probably read about it on Twitter. Um, if your kid is seven and and, and you know she. doesn't have a really firm grasp of like, you know, how laws and the courts work, I would suggest maybe taking a slightly more dumbed down approach, uh, honestly, and say something like, you know, for a long time, people didn't understand that it's okay for two men or two women to love each other and have children. Um, But nowadays, most people do understand that. And so, you know, even though for a while people were confused about this, uh, it was a big controversial topic. Nowadays, it isn't so much. And in, in a lot of states, two men and two women can get married and have children and love each other just like anyone else. And it'll soon be like that all over the country. Really simple. And if your kid doesn't get it at that point, then maybe that's when you introduce them to that gay couple you know. and right. they, And then they talk it out. Right.
2: I love um, that answer. I mean, I like both yeah. of those answers, but I really love that answer. And I think... Basically, all of our answers are similar in that we don't think you should completely ignore it. That, well, I understand kind of, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, I think, that I, the inclination of parents sometimes to gloss over injustice in order to not introduce an idea in their kids' head that gay people are different or that, you know, this person of this race is different. That's something that we should actually not do because people are different <laughs> and it's fine for our kids to. To have that, you know, to know that uh, one and- thing
4: that I could have added, I think that I think would be useful to people is um, I mean, there's a real parallel in civil rights struggles. Right. And you can you can use that, I think, as an example, because almost every kid I know by first grade. Because of, basically, because of Martin Luther King Day, has had a big conversation in school about the civil rights movement, about the fact that people used to think that black people shouldn't be allowed to do uh, to do things that white people were allowed to do. But obviously, we know that that's not true, and everything changed. And I think that that's a useful parallel. Just if you want, if the part of the description is well, people used to think that two men and two women shouldn't be allowed to love each other for some reason, but that has changed now, and that's a parallel that you can make as well.
3: I think that's completely right. And, um, I mean, don't tell the Christian right that you're doing that because they'll be all over you. But I think for the rest of us, the Martin Luther King comparison works perfectly. Kids know who he is. Kids understand that the civil rights struggle happened, I think, by age six or seven. It's talked about in schools. And so why not just draw that analogy? It's not perfect, but it doesn't need to be perfect for this situation. Right.
4: All right, thank, All you, right, Mark, thank you, Mark, for coming in and, yeah, and sharing thank that you. question with us. And thank you, letter writer, for writing in. Um and remember, we would love to hear from you. So once again, mom and dad at slate.com or give us a call and we'll read your uh, we'll answer your letter on the air, four 255 All All right, let's move on to our second segment. Before you're a parent, you're someone who's thinking about becoming a parent. Rebecca Onion, who edits Slate's history blog, The Vault, is such a person right now. But she's worried that along with parenting will come marital discord, conflict, and resentment over who's really doing the work in the home. So in an essay in Slate, she wrote about her desire to create a pre-pregnancy contract with her husband. As she writes, Wouldn't a not-at-all legally binding document outlining expectations and setting a course for periodic reexamination of the division of labor alleviate my fears and prevent aggravation or fights or divorce in the future? Rebecca is joining us on the phone to talk about her piece, to talk about what goes into the decision of whether to be a parent or not, and about what such a pre-pregnancy contract might actually say. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. So first of all, congratulations on thinking about maybe possibly considering having kids. That's (laughs) a big step. Uh, So tell us a little bit about um, what led you to consider such a, I think for many people would consider this sort of a, a radical act of bureaucracy.
1: Uh, well, um, so I, since my sort of immediate friends and family have started having kids in the past five years, um, and I'm 36, as I said in the piece, um, I've been thinking about it more, more and more. And I've sort of come to believe that while I've been thinking a lot about the labor of it, and I've been talking to my mom friends a lot about the labor of it, I don't think that my husband necessarily has the same kinds of conversations with his dad friends, um, sort of the parallel men of those couples that we're friends with. Um, and indeed, he's admitted to me that he doesn't necessarily have those talks about the way that um, sort of the day-to-day of life changes once you have a kid.
4: Yeah, we're, um, dudes, we're mostly just talking about our balls. <laughs>
1: Actually, after I wrote the piece, I went on a a Toronto radio show, and the host asked me if my husband was having conversations about uh, sports instead of that, and I was like, no, (laughs) no, not really. Um, That's not his way, but um, for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to be in the forefront of his mind. Um, And so I sort of started thinking about this as a way to codify the kinds of conversations that I wanted to have with him about those eventualities. And that is where I started thinking about it. And then when I started doing more research into it, I found that the 70s feminists, as with many things, had talked about it before. <laughs> um, and so I started looking at it more closely.
4: Do you view such a, a, a contract like this as something that is meant to cover every exigency? Or is it something that's meant to cover just, say, the first few months of... Of parenthood, or is it meant to be broad or specific? Like, have you even thought? Have you thought necessarily about the nuts and bolts of what such a document might entail?
1: Well, I think in some ways, the um, the seventy feminist that I was referring to earlier, um, Alex Shulman, um, she had a contract with her husband that was both macro and micro. So mm. she had sort of macro principles that they would agree upon which had to do with the equal worth of each of their work. Um, even if their work wasn't paying the same monetarily, she wanted her work to be considered to be the same, um, her time to be considered to be uh, just as valuable as his. Um, so that's not a day-to-day thing. And then she had a list of micro day-to-day things, um, you know, splitting up who was gonna do the dishes on what day, um, who was gonna be the one to take the kids to school. Um, So they already had kids when they made that contract. So that makes it totally different, and that makes it so that they sort of knew what their family life, the quotidian sort of uh, things that they had to do would be. And we obviously don't know that. Um, So in some ways, I feel like the macro things are the things that might be the most effective in this kind of a situation. Um, So for me, it would be things like wanting to have some assurance that, I could have protected space to write. Um, So as as I mentioned in the piece, since I'm a writer, I feel like uh, my time is so much more flexible that any emergency would probably be my business. (laughs) Um, So things like that, things like trying to um, agree on, you know, visits to uh, in-laws and family, um, how things like that would work with a kid, Um, you know, more for me also, I was interested in trying to talk about um, setting time to re-examine how everyone was feeling about what labor was going on. So is yeah, that, that seemed the contract like, itself is, it, is that provision. Yeah. yeah,
4: That seemed like one of the most important aspects of what you were talking about. And one of the things I thought was most interesting in your piece was this notion that maybe the most important thing that can go into a contract like this is – Are provisions for renegotiation and provisions for discussion. And as in fact, the contract itself becomes a means of ensuring that these things are always being discussed and never just sort of fall by the wayside.
2: This actually, your piece actually inspired me, Rebecca, because my Ah. husband and I have, you know, we fight about a lot of this stuff that I think, as you (laughs) say, most of your friends tell you that they fight about with their spouses. And we actually started doing, well, we we did it one, one Sunday. We did it last Sunday. We'll see if we do it this Sunday. Yeah. That we said every week we're going to sit down on Sunday night, open the mail, first of all, which is like this. You know, pressure—it's just this constant thing weighing on us because we never open the mail. Uh, but then also talk about—oh my god, that really made Dan laugh. Also, also talk about uh, I the thing—this
4: vision of your house being covered in mail. It is, <laughs> and you guys it be is, like, it is. Oh
2: shit, the mail! It is. Uh, but then also talk about the things coming up this week whether like the little yeah. things like who has to shuttle who where and also like somebody needs to make the doctor's appointment and some you know the dentist appointment or whatever and divide that stuff up and and one of the things that was that really resonated with me in your piece was that you talked about your fear of becoming captain mom the captain yeah. of the family and that your mom was that person and i think often yeah. women are uh, the default captains which doesn't necessarily mean that the Women always or the moms always do more, but the moms are somehow responsible for telling, for holding all the information of what needs to be done. So, like, my husband yeah. would, is more than happy to go pick up, you know, groceries on the way home from work or make the dentist appointment or whatever. But I'm still the one who knows when to tell him to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want that responsibility. Uh, so, Dan, I'm curious, as the man in the room... Yeah. Do you feel that way? Does it, do you feel like it, it is that your wife, that Alia, kind of, uh, well... Is the captain yes, of the family? The yeah, the
4: family. more than I wish was the case. I think that that I am better, I think, than many partners in relationships who are not that kind of, who are not the captain, necessarily, who are not naturally inclined to be the captain. I'm better at, like, you know, at going to the grocery store without anyone having to tell me I have to go to the grocery store or making dinner without anyone anyone having to call me and say, oh, don't forget to make dinner for our children. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do but stuff like doctor's appointments and crap like that off is like never at the forefront of my mind. And so my big step upon reading your piece, Rebecca, was that this morning I emailed Alia and was like, wait a minute, our kid's birthday is coming up. I bet she needs a doctor's appointment. (laughs) So I'm I'm going to do that. I know. Um, But yes, but I do think that that's a pretty endemic situation. And and it doesn't always necessarily fall along general lines, but you're absolutely right that very often it is. The woman becomes the captain of the family, and the dad feels like he is doing his part by saying, "Oh, honey, I'll do whatever you tell me to do."
2: Related to that, the the honey-do
4: list, which is like such a a, yeah, an odiferous thing.
2: But do you guys think, no, I'm just curious if you guys think, I also hate this, and like I said, I don't want to be the captain, but I also wonder, does there have to be a captain? I think maybe there does. Like, I want this sort of ideal co-parenting world, but I'm not sure how that works, if it's possible.
4: I don't think there has to be a captain. I think that the goal, and, you know, I think this is sort of a broader goal, too, is that the goal of, of a document like this and maybe of many marriages where there's maybe an initial disparity between the person whose natural inclination is to keep up with everything and the other person whose natural inclination is to keep up with nothing, the goal should be for both of them to move toward the mean a little bit, right? So that the person who is like very anal about making sure every doctor's appointment is made right on time and making sure the house is spotless recognizes that once children come all those things have to get a little bit messier and a little more ad hoc, and the person who otherwise wouldn't think of those things have to, has to get better about thinking of them more often, so that they're yeah. pulling their weight
1: i think and that, I think that's one of the things that I was thinking about a lot while writing this was that um there may be it, between me and my husband and maybe between other couples as well there's this like sort of like a spontaneity gap <laughs> um,
0: yeah so he yeah. he
1: sort of prefers that um things outside of work i mean within this is the thing that kind of gets me is that within his work life, um, you know, he's very organized and on top of things, but um, he doesn't like to necessarily have to think of home as a place where that also has to happen, where you have to, um, you know, maybe start keeping a Google calendar or start um, keeping sort of having reminders or, you know, sort of quantifying your home life in a way, Right. Where um, he sort of sees that as draining the sort of emotion out of it. And some of the email responses that I got to this piece have said that to me as well. You know, like, you're making something that should be about joy into this, like. Uh, that's, that's crazy. Of- no, that's this is not that's about joy. Bullshit. There are plenty
2: of joyful things about having kids, <laughs> but doing this crap is not joy. It's- right.
1: Well, this is my argument, is that I feel like that is a that a lot of sort of work for the mom hides behind that, in a way. Um, you know, this feeling like, oh, but you know, for example, w- within my family reunions, we love to just feel like, oh, we're just hanging out. But then, of course, like, ever since I was about 13 years old and started being a feminist, <laughs> I noticed that my aunt and my mom and my grandmother were doing all of the dishes. Um, and I was like, oh, all of this spontaneous hanging out is sort of undergirded by this um, this thought, this sort of mom thought <laughs> that's going on.
4: Right. Right. Spontaneity um, is made yeah. possible by work. And so... Yes. Making yeah. it clear who does that work does not kill spontaneity; it enables spontaneity. That's so, Allison, if oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh no, 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 that's my same. I agree with oh, you. Yeah, yeah, plus one.
4: So, Allison, <laughs> if you were going to, um, if you had been drawing up a, a contract like this before you had kids with John, knowing what you know now about about stuff, is there one provision that you feel like would be a must-have in a document like this?
2: Um, I. F- Think, Ugh, it's so hard because there are so many little things. Um, right. I think that I wish we both took responsibility or dealt equally with our child care situation with, mm-hmm. you know, I wish there was a way to sort of say... You know, when childcare falls through, we're both equally responsible for filling that gap. And uh, and also in terms of like the communication with our nanny, I think that is almost entirely on me. And I wish that that was that it was not that way. I think that would be the main thing. Yeah. Yes.
4: Um, Mine would be this. This is sort of this is a provision that I wish that we had thought of although we couldn't have known before but i wish that we had thought of this before we had kids but i wish that we had really actually written down and set out a specific set of requirements about um about the ver- about the very first weeks of babyhood and maybe the first 3 months of babyhood the time specifically when alia was on maternity leave and i took some leave um, but also I was working. But I wish that we had really delineated specific responsibilities for that time. And obviously this is not relevant to the entire rest of our lives as parents, but I wish we had said, you know, when will I take off work? How many days will it be? I wish we had set all this up beforehand instead of just being like, I guess I can take a week now. I wish that we had mm-hmm. specifically said, who gets up late at night? who, if you're nursing, who gets up late? If we're bottle feeding, who gets up late? And then what does the other person do to make sure that the person who got up late then has time to, like, f- to, nap and rest and like collect themselves what are the specific things that the other person is going to do to help that person because for this happened to both of us when she was nursing and she would get up really late i then did a shitty job of making sure that during the day she was like basically compensated for that and then when we were bottle feeding and i got up late then she did a shitty job of making sure i was compensated for that and that we should have done better with that like laying out really specific rules for that would have been a big help
2: yeah all right, Rebecca. I hope whatever you guys decide to do—if you do decide to make a little adorable Rebecca Onion baby—maybe uh, you'll check back in with us and let us know if the contract actually works.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I definitely will.
2: We would love to hear, and we'd love to hear from listeners if you what you guys think about this, whether whether you know drawing up a contract like this can work, and what are the provisions you'd want to have in yours.
4: Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to do this on the Parenting Podcast is we have a lot of parents who are listeners, and I think yeah. a lot of you have thoughts about what you would have included in your contract if you could have, if you, could have, um, if you had known then what you know now. So please, yeah, uh, email us at momanddadatslate.com, and, uh, and Rebecca will be hearing and listening to those emails carefully, as will we. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks so much. Okay, on to recommendations. So recently listening to listening to uh, Slate's Double X Gab Fest, there was a segment on summer beach reads, and somehow that segment turned into the three women, June, Noreen, and Jessica, recommending like reading difficult, challenging, really long books on the beach. I think the titles War and Peace came up and uh, Power the Power Broker, which the Power <laughs> Broker is incorrect. like what? Like, you know, thousands incorrect. of pages. Right. Uh, it was a very slatey <laughs> summer beach segment. Very (laughs) counterintuitive. But I just kept thinking, oh, you do not have kids, ladies. Uh, Because for me, a beach read, I cannot even manage really uh, a book with a Cosmo and a pink stiletto on the cover. I like to read magazine pieces. So I'm just going to recommend a good magazine piece recently uh, that just came out this week in Rolling Stone. It is by... The terrific writer.
4: Oh, is it Vanessa Gregor-Ajadis' piece?
2: Yes, totally. Thank you for pronouncing her last name for me. Uh, about Jason Patrick's uh, custody battle. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but Jason Patrick uh, was a sperm donor for his ex-girlfriend, and now he is trying to get uh, paternity rights to, uh, to his child, and he's gone in this media crusade, and the mother, in this case, has not been much heard from, and she's now spoke to Vanessa for this piece and it's very interesting we haven't talked about this at all on, on our show but Emily Bazelon has written about it for sleep before father's rights paternity rights it's a completely fascinating and difficult um, subject and this piece is definitely worth, worth a read so it's called Tempest in a Test Tube in Rolling Stone
4: uh, that's a great recommendation on this really good piece. Um, my recommendation is for an activity, a very specific activity that my older daughter just did this past week for the second time. Um, and uh, I recommend this specific activity for anyone who wants to sign up for it. But I also am making this recommendation to colleges everywhere to please institute this program because it is a, it's like a mint. You can print money. Um, my daughter went with her grandfather last weekend to Madison, Wisconsin to the University of Wisconsin's campus for Grandparent University. Grandparent University is a two-day program in which a grandparent takes a grandchild to campus. The grandchild chooses a major. Um, I made little air quotes with my hands when I said that they stay in the dorms. They eat in the dining hall. They go to a day and a half's worth of activities that all revolve around this course of study. There are a bunch of different choices, photography and theater, but also many of them are science and tech based. And so Lyra ended up doing a two weeks, a two day sort of mini course with her grandfather in biotechnology. So that was they, her choice.
2: Biotechnology. Was, it was her.
4: It was her third choice, but she did not get <laughs> photography. Or um, but she loved it. She loved, loved, loved it. And she so like they shook cream to make butter, and they played with with uh, DNA models, and they did a whole project where they um, did m- experiments with quote alien blood because there was a crime scene and one alien committed the crime, and they had to figure out which alien it was by using like a like a mass spectrometer or some shit on the alien blood, which I think was just Marker, but whatever. She loved it so much. And – It was a great bonding experience for her and my dad. Um, It, I think, got her a little bit excited about science. It also just got her very excited about the concept of college in general and has really brought that into focus for her. She understands now why we talk about saving for college and why it's important and why she might like it. She loved the food because she got to eat a donut and a bagel and sugar cereal for breakfast at the dining hall. It was just great. And so, Freshman
2: 15. Right. She's going to get it in, like, one day. But so, (laughs)
4: like – but so, yes – Grandparent University at the University of Wisconsin is great specifically, but more broadly, every university alumni association should create exactly this kind of thing because it is it gets kids excited about these colleges. And for example, my wife's mom is is already like, why does the University of North Carolina not have this exact program? Because I want to take my children to Chapel Hill, not stupid Madison. So come on, get on it, everyone.
2: That's really cool. I want to see if my university or where my parents went does the same thing. That's a great idea. Good yeah. recommendation. Okay. Thank you. Thanks to Chris Wave for producing this podcast and also to Andy Bowers, executive producer of All Slate Podcasts. Thank you to our intern, Laura Smith. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks, David Plotz, for being a great editor all these years. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, thanks Allison. Thank you all for listening.